My name is Tim Galligan, AKA the ghost of real estate and welcome to episode number two of our podcast. If you're interested in real estate, business or learning what it takes to own your own business, this podcast is for you. Our guest today is Nicole Zubich from Zubich Law Offices with offices in Garden City, Babylon and New York City. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest, Nicole Zubich. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. All right. So you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started and what it is that you do? Sure. So my name is Nicole Zubich. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney. I grew up in Hopog, Suffolk County. Nice. And I thought at a young age that I wanted to be an attorney. So our career center in my high school, Hopog High School, had a job opening for an elder law and estate planning attorney whose office was right across the street from the high school. So in 10th grade, I walked over and started walking to work every day for a lovely gentleman. His name's Ken, Ken Gravy. Unfortunately, he passed on, but... He was my mentor, and I worked for Mr. Graby throughout high school, college, law school, and even after law school. I eventually went on to uh, start my own business. I do have offices, as you mentioned, in Garden City, Babylon, and New York City, but our clientele oftentimes can't leave their homes, so our office will travel to them. Of course, with COVID restrictions, we've tried to be doing things remotely as best as possible, but we do accommodate clients anywhere from Westchester, Orange County, all the way out to Montauk. A large area of our focus is helping first responders and veterans. I do um, awesome. serve a counsel to one of the firms that represents the New York City Police Department, lieutenants and detectives. And again, you know, we try to reach out to folks that are on the front lines of the COVID situation. We're offering some services pro bono or at discounted rates just to make sure everybody has one less thing to worry about right now with everything going on. It's very nice of you guys. Thank you. Um, so since you were what, 15 years old, you just knew you wanted to be an attorney? Yeah, I thought I, that, that seemed like a good fit. At the time I wanted to be a prosecutor, but having worked for an elder law attorney, it's really a nice area of practice that you feel like you're helping people, um, especially when you're dealing with populations of the elderly, people facing disabilities, families going through losing a loved one or facing the hard prospect of having to put somebody into a nursing home facility, which is always a tough decision, especially now with the COVID situation going on. It's very difficult for family members to visit with their loved ones. So it's, it is an area where you're not just helping them navigate through the law, but you really are holding their hand through a lot of emotional issues too. That's great. Um, so the exact core focuses of um, elder care, estate planning, uh, I have a hard time understanding it. Uh, can you walk us through what the difference is between elder care, estate planning, and what those exact focuses entail? So our areas of practice encompass a wide variety of areas, anything from, and it doesn't have to be just for elderly individuals. So everybody over the age of 18 should have a solid power of attorney, which helps somebody make financial decisions on your behalf if you become incapacitated, a living will and healthcare proxy for healthcare directives and decisions, a last will and testament, in most cases, we encourage clients to potentially do planning beyond that and some variation of potentially trust planning. Elder law and estate planning also encompasses helping individuals that perhaps have a special needs child that they need to sure. make certain are provided for. We also assist clients who have dealt with somebody passing away where they have to go through what's called probate or administration, depending on whether or not the person that passed had a will. We also assist clients with guardianship matters, which comes up when someone did not do these documents or they didn't have the proper powers in their documents and sort of things that come up in between. A large area of practice focus for us is also Medicaid planning and Medicaid applications. And there's different types of Medicaid programs. 
Our area of practice focuses on individuals who are looking for home care, what they refer to as community Medicaid sometimes for individuals who wish to remain at home. There are also some assisted living here facilities on Long Island that do take the home care Medicaid as a form of partial payment. So we assist clients with those applications as well as, of course, clients who are in a nursing home facility, whether it's beyond what their insurance coverage will pay for or for an extended period of time or on a permanent placement basis. So I am a 33-year-old healthy individual. Do I need a will for my house? Do I need to put it in an estate or trust? How does that work and what are the benefits? So somebody like that, depending on whether or not they're married, they have children, that's going to dictate what type of documents may or so may not be appropriate. So you're 33, you're married, you have children. Yep. You want to be considering making sure that, again, in the event of incapacity, which means that you're not able to make the decisions for yourself. That could be something that's temporary. We've all heard of situations where somebody has to be in a, a drug-induced coma or something right. that's not sure. hopefully going to be the permanent end result. Or we do unfortunately have instances where somebody is now permanently incapacitated due to uh, you know an accident or some medical situation that's occurred. So we always want to make sure that your family can take over these decisions with ease. And that's in the form of the power of attorney for financial decisions, the living will and healthcare proxy for your medical decisions. And again, it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 88, those are very important. For somebody like you are describing, a will is of course important to have so that we're not leaving it up to how the law is going to dictate your assets be distributed. But we may want to talk about doing a trust in that instance to help avoid probate. And what's probate? Probate's the process where you, your executor, your nominated executor of your estate has to actually present that will to what we call the surrogates court. And that process can be lengthy. It can be time consuming. It can be uh, very costly. It does open the door for people to come forward and potentially contest the will, even if they don't have a basis to do it. It could just be a nuisance thing that you have to get an attorney involved with. And so we do encourage our clients to try to avoid that probate process. Again, depending on the circumstances and the scenario you're describing, maybe something like a revocable trust potentially to protect the family so that in the event, let's say, for example, you own the home, but your wife's name is not on the home. Right. In order for us to now transfer title to her, we're going to have to go through that process without the trust involved in order to be able to do that. So if I have if I have a trust, I don't need to go through probate. Is that accurate? In most instances, yes. So there's okay. always a, you know, some circumstance that maybe something isn't incorporated in the trust, but generally speaking, let's say you put the house in the trust for purposes of transferring the title over or being able to sell it, that minimizes your having to go through that probate process. Got it. So if God forbid something were to happen to me, it makes it a lot easier on my family. It's already set up and everything is written out how it's supposed to happen. Yes. Okay. Um, from an elder care standpoint, so how does how does that work? My grandmother, let's just say in a theoretical situation, is living with me right now and I want her to go to a nursing home or I want to continue to take care of her. How does elder, elder care and the planning around that, how does that all take place and what are the benefits to it? So one thing I want to mention before we get into exactly how that works is that most people are going to want to keep a loved one at home, what you're describing. Right. Or if they have to go in a nursing home. I, know, I kind of made they it seem like think, I would ship her off. Right? Well, yeah, I was going to try to, to <laughs> turn it the other way. We don't have to kick your grandma out right away. But most people, not Tim, want to keep their family member at home. So in that situation, um, so we'll start with your question. Sorry, not right. to divert too much. But oh. let's say you're... You really have to put grandma in a nursing home. Right. She's really can't be at home. She requires too high a level of care or more commonly somebody takes a fall or something happens and they need some type of rehabilitation and they 
they deteriorate or if there's a cognitive issue going on where it's just too much for the family to take care of. Nursing homes are very costly on Long Island. So that's sort of like the last resort or, you know, in your right. situation here, let's pretend for a moment that she was not capable of staying at home, even with round the clock care. With a nursing home, because they're so costly, most people, statistically speaking, I can't give you an exact percentage, but let's say, you know, for every client I see, nine out of 10 of them need to talk about Medicaid planning. And those are the clients that, you know, essentially have a home or they have some assets that they would like to protect ultimately. But when, once somebody's in a nursing home and they're looking to apply for that Medicaid, there is what we call a five-year look-back period. That means that when you go to apply for the benefit, the government is essentially going back five years through your assets and your financial history to determine your eligibility. And there's a lot of pitfalls to that. There's a lot of things that can come up that can create ineligibility. Of whose financial uh, stability? Is it the person who's um, applying for the Medicaid or the elder that's receiving? It's the applicant, but it, well, if they're married, then their spouse as well, even if the spouse isn't applying. Got it. And oftentimes clients will come in and say, I heard about this thing called spousal refusal. Well, yes, you can you could <clears throat> be submitting a spousal refusal in most cases, depending on the circumstances, which does not mean, though, that the non-applying spouse does not have to produce their own financial records and so forth. Got it. So when the, the, the applicants go into the nursing home and have to apply for the Medicaid benefits, there's this, this extensive review. So our goal in the planning phase of things, if we can be proactive, is to try to start proactively protecting assets, maybe in the form of the trust planning, a different type of trust than the revocable trust that we touched upon, but some type of trust planning to protect assets. And in the, in, in the situation where you have to place the person or they're going from a hospitalization to a rehabilitation and not able to come home, naturally, I call that crisis planning because we don't have five years to wait. We've got to deal with the circumstances then and now. So for those clients, the last thing we ever want to hear is that they spent down all their money to qualify for the Medicaid benefit. That's not something right. that should be done, nor is it appropriate for anybody to be told advice that they have to spend down, per se. Right. Um, the word spend down can be used in a variety of instances. But getting back to your scenario, you have to put grandma into a nursing home. You're going to be dealing with a five-year look back. You're likely going to have to apply for Medicaid unless she has substantial enough assets and income and or long-term care insurance that's going to cover it, the Medicaid is a reality. Oh, okay. But in the instance if she stayed home, then the options for the in-home care are a bit different and how the, the process works is different. So currently, as we speak today on January 22nd, 2021, the home care applications are much different insofar as they don't require a look back in the sense of that the government going back the five years. However, that's changing. And our, our last conversation on this amongst our colleagues, where we were told it was going to be April 1st, that may be getting extended. But nevertheless, the reality is that in-home care Medicaid benefits will eventually have a look back period phased in of up to two and a half years under the current changes in the legislation. So that, of course, means that proactive is better than reactive in these situations because it'll provide us with more opportunities to shelter and protect guard our money and assets and so forth. And can you be grandfathered in for no look back period? So if you apply before this cutoff date, which right. until we have further proof of the extension, I'm going to say for now, we think it's April 1st. We're hoping that it will be extended until July 1st. Um, you know, with COVID happening again, things have all been up in the air and a lot of things have been extended as a slight benefit to what happened here with the change in, in the rules and the legislation that occurred back in 2020. So, yes, if you apply before that date, you can be grandfathered in. 
Wow. And so if anybody has a, a, is looking at this and saying, my loved one needs the help, we can use the assistance or you're privately paying and, and that's really a constraint on your finances, then now is the time to get in before the rules change. Because again, once we have a look back, it restricts what we can do in terms of protecting sure. assets. Well, that makes sense. All right, so you have obviously helping a lot of people on both sides of it and you have offices, two on Long Island, you have one in New York City. Where did you start with the business? Did you have an office right away? Did you, besides your mentor, did you have anyone else that you worked for? You just dove into it right on your own? Yes, so after uh, Mr. Gravy passed away, I had gone out with a colleague of mine who we were eventually in business together as partners, and then I went out completely on my own. It's been about seven years now that I've been totally on my own. And my colleague and I, that we had the practice together, still continue to uh, liaison on a lot of things and collaborate. So, and as I said, we do have relationships with other firms, other types of attorneys that do offer us to be involved in assisting the clients in a whole variety of things. So if somebody calls me and says, commonly we get requests for, I need somebody that does disability applications, or we need help with veterans benefits or something as common as I was in an auto accident. We do have a network of attorneys that we are comfortable being able to have our clients liaison with if it's outside the scope of what we do. Great. Um, and how did you scale the three offices? What, what did that look like? And what did the customer acquisition process look like in the beginning? So for us, because we do deal with a lot of clients through the police department, right. simply being based in Babylon Village, which is where I reside and it's a great place to be, is too far out for people. And it seems, you know, a, a million years away when you're coming from work, working odd hours and shifts. So I primarily had an office in Garden City, which is where we still have the location. And we felt that in order to prop- properly provide for the clients, we, we couldn't just be based in a small space or have one location in Suffolk County. So we try as best we can to split the time in terms of having staff in both locations and getting into the city on an as-needs basis for our clientele. Nice. Um, so we actually, speaking of customer acquisition, we, we met through a common connection in BNI, who was part of my group. Um, and then from there, here we are sitting here today. So um, power of networking. What networking do you do? Um, how do you go about it? What are you involved in? Anything in the community? I know you said you do a lot with vets, you do a lot with police officers. Um, how do you speak to that and how is it working and helping out with them? So I think for, for networking purposes, you have to look at it from a pretty holistic perspective. And so one of the networking groups that I'm involved with, the BNI group and our chapter, BNI's motto is giver's gain. So essentially, the more you're giving to the people in your group, the more that you'll get the reap and sow type of effect. And I think that that's important because I have had success with networking, especially in that group, because you look at everything from a perspective of if I meet somebody, for example, we have a florist in our BNI group. We utilize him for a variety of different things that come up. We have clients pass away, unfortunately. You send a nice you know, arrangement, whatever it may be. So at the end of the day, I think you have to look at it right. not just from the lane of this is an you know, example of strictly funeral directors for us or somebody that's going to a financial advisor. You have to look at the larger scope. Everybody that comes in contact with a client and no matter what industry they are in is coming in contact with somebody that's a potential client for us insofar as, as I said from the beginning, everybody needs power of attorney, healthcare proxies, wills. They need to be thinking proactively about asset preservation. So it really is more about, I think, trying to connect with other individuals in whatever industry they may be in 
figuring out how you can help them. And then I think the benefit of that will come twofold. So, you know, it's, it's really going to come back to you. I think the more you give, the more you are going to receive. Yeah. That power of the universe is nuts, right? Sure. It's a real thing. Can't explain it, but it's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's been a big part of, of my business as well and growing is just providing value across the board, um, no matter who it is. You just never know who you're going to run into and just do the next right thing, right? I mean, it's not too difficult, but it's a small thing that's overlooked by a lot, I feel like. Absolutely. Um, so you had a mentor. Do you uh, mentor anyone else or what advice would you have for someone who is looking to become an attorney or just in law school or thinking about it? I think the best thing that you can do is try to pick, you know, your top three areas of interest as far as practice areas are concerned and really immerse yourself in that area of practice by even offering to intern or just go in and and shadow somebody for a day or two, because it's very tough to decide what you're going to end up in. And the way that that's usually dictated in law school is where you get your internship or your first job. In my case, I was lucky enough to have that opportunity from a very young age and from a very early perspective where I actually enjoyed what I was doing. And there was a point in time where, again, I thought I wanted to go into litigation. I felt that I liked public speaking that way. So I had interned for a personal injury firm. And I said, you know what? I like the elder law better than this. That's not really my niche. But I think you have to, while you can, take advantage of, even if it's not going to be a full-blown, regular, conventional internship or paid position, go out there and try to get a sense of it. Because law school is going to teach you all of the foundations for what you have to do in terms of the theory and, and the, the foundation of our laws and things like that. But the hands-on real life experience is invaluable. Right. You know, I agree with you. I think that's the best way. You can read as many books as you want and just get out there and do it. And it kind of seems to work out, right? That's right. the best uh, source of learning from my experience. I'm a big believer in that. Absolutely. So you're running three offices. How many people are on your team? So I have an attorney that I went to law school with. That's attorney awesome. Karen Biggis. We went, we met the first day of law school. We started law school in 2003. So it's been a while. I have um, my one of my main assistants, Christine Yandoli. She's also known as Chrissy the Doll. She's the coolest employee of the office because <laughs> she's actually a professional fighter. In addition really? to being our uh, UFC fighter. MMA. Yep. Really? Chrissy the Doll. Look her up. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to. I yeah. Love, yeah. You ready for the fight this weekend? We're ready McGregor, for the fight. Yeah. Who do totally. you got? Can't say for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think McGregor's going to take I, I, I like McGregor, but we were watching his last The Way In where he totally goes off the charts with... Uh, yeah, it's the style. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But when Christy gets back to fighting, you, you know, everybody should come and see her. She was fighting out I of the Paramount and out of That's okay, awesome. he's Yeah, I also grew up with Christy. We went to Hot Pots Gathering really? with Christy since middle school. Very so, cool. Yeah, so she's on our team, which is a good thing because if you're on Don't the other side, off, Christy, huh? yeah, you a <laughs> swift kick in the... Yeah. <laughs> Um, Courtney just started with us. So we have another um, paralegal and then we have our Medicaid team, which is headed up now by um, our Medicaid coordinator, Amy, who actually worked for Medicaid at one point and um, now does it from the other angle. So she used to process applications. So all in total, we have about six support staff, the other attorney, um, Nikki, who you've met, yeah, who does sure. our, our operations. So we've got a really good team. Nice. So you're running all the offices. What do you do on your free time if there is any? So my free time, I am probably obsessed would be the word my husband used to describe with dog rescue and trying to help dogs, oh, wow. uh, particular pit bulls. We have three of them. Um, my husband's an airline pilot, so we try to squeeze and travel when we can. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, just um, I actually trained when I was younger to be a ballerina. But that unfortunately didn't plan out. So here I am talking about elder law and state planning. But nevertheless, <laughs> um, we try to do, you know, a lot of fitness things out on the water, on the boat. 
trying to enjoy the outdoors. We do. We have a boat. Nice. Mm-hmm. I want water skiing for the first time this summer. Oh, really? Yeah, it's easier than it looks. It wasn't that hard. Uh, just got to stand up. For all that time that I learned to balance and be graceful, I am not in <laughs> other aspects. So I'd probably break something, but. Nice. South Shore or North Shore? South Shore. Nice. Yep. Uh, cool. Um, what is your exact mindset? Mindset to me is a very important thing as you're going through all this, right? There's a balance between personal life. There's a balance between work or there should be, or try to be, um, on a day-to-day basis, what drives you? What is your why factor of what you do, why you do what you do? Because I feel like we all need to be productive members of society here and give back. And especially when you're dealing with the veterans and the first responders, you know, you, my grandmother had a saying, may she rest in peace that you always need to put yourself in the other guy's shoes. And that's sort of what we have to kind of think about in the grand scheme of life. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do the work balance thing yeah. naturally with COVID and trying to keep, yeah. you know, people employed offices going. It's been, it's been tough. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it's one of those things where you have to look at the client perspective and really say, I feel like I'm giving something back when you're helping people through what sometimes is probably the worst time of their life. Sure. So a lot of the, a lot of the vets that you work with, I mean, that must feel good to give back to them, right? And God bless them. Absolutely. Yeah. We come person. from a family of a lot of military people. So it's always been in. Tell them you know, thank you still, for their service. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what are plans for the future? Where do you see yourself uh, going with your, with your law firm? Do you plan on uh, expanding? What does that well, the like? hope is that, you know, there'll be some sense of normalcy, but no matter what that's going to look like in the future, I think we're always looking to expand. Um, I've been thinking about potentially taking a bar exam in Florida. Nice. So that we have the opportunity to have a practice in Florida. A lot of people you know, were moving down that direction to begin with. And you see a lot more people kind of splitting their time, New York and Florida it's and crazy. down south. So yeah. I think that's potentially a, a large area for us. Yeah. Florida is nuts. I'm telling you, we've sold a, a lot of homes recently where everyone's moving down south. I'd say it's a pretty, pretty even split between actually maybe heavier to Florida, but Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina and Florida Yeah, all day. It's crazy. Yeah. And people of all ages, not just not just older people, but people just across the board is getting out of New York. It's interesting. And I had the, I, I don't know how exactly we connected. I can't recall the exact details, but we did make a connection with this amazing Elgin estate planning firm down in Florida. And they're, you know, at the top of their game there. So we have the connection there. So it's nice to kind of have the ability to tell clients, okay, well, if we're, if you're going to establish your residency in Florida, here's right. somebody we can have you connect with and know that you're in good hands. So yeah, for sure. I'm lucky enough to have that as well too. And I've been doing that. So that's one of the great things with Keller Williams is that I'm actually able to meet people since they're such a big company. Um, and with all the technology that they have, it's, it's amazing to be able to just simply look up on my computer, someone in Florida, for example, give them a call, introduce myself. And when I sell someone's home here, that's looking to move to Florida. All it is, I give them that referral. I mean, it's as easy as that. Yeah. They have, you know, and it's ranked by top producer, whatever it is, however you want to search that person. So it's a great connection. We've been able to help out a ton of clients that way. And, you know, we know that they're in good hands and not just out there on their own. So, um, yeah, it seems to be, that seems to definitely work well. So it's good to hear that you could do that on your end as well. Great. And that helps it from the perspective of my clients to know that you guys can also guide them in that direction and not just specifically the New yeah. York basis. No, absolutely. Yeah. We have reach all across, all across the world. Um, I haven't met anyone that sold their home here, moved out of the country, um, but definitely all over the United That's States. Awesome. Yeah. Um, from a tax standpoint, I almost forgot this question earlier from a tax standpoint, how does that help 
um, when you're estate planning and how do taxes go into that? So like when we're talking about, sure. So part of what we have to consider is tax planning as well for certain clients. And that may be a question of deciding whether or not to become a Florida resident or remaining New York resident. When it comes to talking about taxes as it relates to, let's say, the trusts that we mentioned before and transferring property into the trusts, a lot of clients will ask me, well, if I put my house in this irrevocable Medicaid trust that you suggested, will I lose my exemptions? And the answer is no. So you don't lose your property tax exemptions. You may get you know, requests for information from the county or the village or whatever you're situated in for a copy of your trust. All of the trusts that we have created, the language is compliant, so you don't lose those exemptions. If you go to sell, you don't lose your step up in basis, capital gains, exclusions, things like that. So from a tax planning perspective for the trusts, they generally won't have any impact on anything negatively in that aspect. Where tax questions come in as far as estate planning can be with respect to reaching estate tax thresholds. And that's really for clients that are in that higher tier, the wealthier tier. But nevertheless, estate tax is a big, hot topic, political topic. So we don't know what the future is going to bring. But a lot of clients right now that are coming to us are concerned about what is going to happen to taxes. And I don't you know, know exactly what will be, but the general answer is if you're concerned about it, there's things that we can do and provisions we can put into place in these documents that we create for you or planning strategies to minimize tax exposure. So it's important that if you think and it may not be that you meet the threshold now, but you're concerned about the changing of the guard, the political climate. We can always do a review and determine if there's something we can do to minimize tax exposures. Got it. So now if, if I um, if I owned five homes that I was holding and I rent them out, um, would it be wise to have those in a trust as well? And how does that work with my own home? Do I just put them underneath the same trust or? Not necessarily. So it really depends on what your objectives are in terms of those holdings. Are they short term, long term? Are they going to be rentals? Let's say they're long term rental. So the things you want to consider with long term rentals are, again, we have to look at what the total value is to figure out if you have any tax exposure. Mm -hmm. And we do bring in experts that have what we call an LLM in taxation or a tax planning background as well. So if there's something that maybe is more based in talking to a CPA, a tax expert, they can chime in on what the planning should be. Sure. But that question you're posing can come down to tax planning purposes. And then there's also for a lot of clients that have investments or they have rental property, they don't always realize the exposure that they have for liability purposes. And clients will say to me, but I have a homeowner's policy or I have a rental policy or I'm covered through insurance or I have this umbrella policy. Well, that's great. You should have proper insurance. I mean, the old adage is that you can never have too much insurance. Mm -hmm. But what oftentimes we find is that clients don't realize that by not potentially incorporating planning, for example, like an LLC, and then potentially incorporating the trust planning in addition to that, they're exposing their other assets to liability issues. And that comes down to you're renting the property and somebody gets hurt to the extent that they can sue you beyond your insurance coverage or you're found to be negligent and you're getting sued now, you want to insulate and treat those rentals in a way that you would protect it if it was like a regular company. Right. So I have it set up as an LLC or whatever it may be. What is the likelihood of them being able to pierce that corporate veil? Well, the likelihood comes down to how well you keep it structured Got and it. how well you adhere books to books, minutes, also keeping your financial records in sure. proper order. 
A lot of the times we find clients end up commingling and that's where they can pierce the corporate veil as we call it. Like so, a, one bank account for two different properties or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or the one bank account and you start putting personal money in with right. the, you know, so you, as much as it creates some extra paperwork, in the long run, it's worth it to have that extra peace of mind and protection and coverage. All right, so keep it clean, folks. Right? Keep it clean. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, if anyone wanted to reach out to you, has questions, how can they reach you? And are you on social media if you want to share your handles, phone number, email address? Sure. So our website is ZubichLaw.com. And if you'd like to reach out to us, you mentioned that you heard us on the podcast or you were referred through your agency. We won't charge for a consultation to look nice. over any paperwork you have or to discuss some basic you know, topics. And certainly if you need the assistance, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our Suffolk County locations phone number is 631-840-0100. And our Nassau County location is 516-880-9988. It frankly doesn't matter which one you call, you're going to be able to reach somebody. And I usually have staff there from about 8.30 till 6.30 in the evening. We encourage you to call between 9 and 5. Awesome. Well, Nicole, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Likewise, thank you very much for having me. All I right. appreciate it. Thank you.